God is good. And all the time. All right. Pray that you'll uh, go with me into the book of Job. Take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 1. Today we pick up in verse 6. We'll cover verses 6 through 12. If you're using that pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 576 in the pew Bible. Pray that you have your word open. We're going to walk through it today and uh, see what God has for us. Thursday of this week, we had a staff meeting. And you're going, Jeff, that doesn't seem newsworthy. You see, we had a staff meeting. I had assigned a book for the staff to read. You're going, you made them read a book? Yeah. But I chose a book for them to read, and we chose this past Thursday, after a number of different calendar events, to sit together and review the book. And we had a good time in coming together as a staff and reviewing this book. But truth be told, I am not a big staff meeting guy. I believe my lack of desire to have a staff meeting stems from probably 25 years in the business world where it seemed like I was in endless meetings. Many times that I felt were not worth the time and the resources, not just of mine, but of everybody's that was invested in that time. I believe that we, the staff of First Baptist Church, can effectively organize and direct ourselves through lots of what I'll call ongoing conversations. We do meet and speak regularly. Sometimes it'll be an impromptu meeting in an office or sometimes in the hallway. I'll just step out of my office and call everybody together, and we will stop and just take care of some business. But typically what I do is I only have the people that are involved in that conversation as part of that meeting. There's no reason if we're going to have a youth conversation for Missy or Zach to have to be a part. So we just sort of have these conversations with the people that are directly involved. On the rare occasions that I do call a full staff meeting, and when I say full staff meeting, that would include everybody in the office and everybody that works in the church. When I talk just staff meeting, in the staff meeting we had Thursday, it was Zach and Kenny and Zeke and Missy and Jeff. But on the rare occasions that I call a full staff meeting, it tends to startle people on staff. Like, oh no. When a non-meeting guy wants to meet, it typically creates a little startle for them. And to be fair, sometimes there are some unusual things going on when I draw everybody together for a meeting like that. But when I do call a staff meeting, I desire for all of the staff to attend. And I only desire the staff to attend. If you get what I'm saying, it's like an invite only kind of thing. We are the leadership group responsible for moving forward, and therefore the only ones needed to be present in that meeting that I call. And so as we move forward into the book of Job, today we see a staff meeting. I ask you to stand with me. We're going to read together from the book of Job, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. 
6 through 12 of Job chapter 1. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of men came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Thank you, church. You may sit down. Keep your scripture open. If you're a note taker, there are going to be some things that you may want to write down today. I'll also remind you that if all of a sudden I start talking too fast and we get too far down the road, you can always go back on Facebook or YouTube or on our church website starting on Monday afternoons and you can catch this again. So uh, not that you're going to miss it, but if you desire to or if you desire to share it, those are ways to be able to do this. I would like to start with a statement. Actually, it's probably a five-minute statement. You know, sometimes people say, I have a statement to make. They're getting ready to give you a sentence. And then sometimes when people have a statement, they're going to give you a little bit more. But let me just start with this statement. I have not been this worked up. And this nervous over a sermon, and I don't know how long. Church, this is an important set of verses that we're getting ready to speak on. But I'd like to start with that statement that I believe sets the key to our understanding for the remainder of the book of Job. And you're going, man, you just made a statement. We're five verses in last week. We got 42 chapters. And I hear you out there. They're, the over-under on how long are we going to be in the book of Job, I hear it. Some of you are saying, we're 42 chapters. We're going to be in the book of Job till Christmas. And my wife jumped in. She said, Christmas, nothing. He'll take Christmas off. We're liable to be in this till Easter. Now listen, church, when your wife is rooting, I don't know if that's for you or again you, but when your wife is in the betting pool as to how long we're going to be in the book of Job, I don't know. But I will tell you that I believe that where we go from this moment on determines what we get from Job and how God is honored through Job in our lives. But let me make this singular statement. The glory of God is more important than your or my comfort. Now, let me state this again, and, and at the end, I want to hear the church sort of validate their agreement with this statement, but let me say the statement again. Church, the glory of God is more important than your comfort or my comfort. And the church said what? Amen. You know, it's easy to believe that right now. We're in church. We're here. 
For most part, we feel good. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good, right? We, we've revved ourselves up, we've worshiped, and we're going, the glory of God is the absolute most important thing in all of life. And we all go, amen. Well, there was a Puritan prayer that I read that contained this statement. Lord of all being, there is one thing that deserves my greatest care that calls forth my ardent desires. That is that I may answer the great end for which I am made to glorify thee who has given me being. That's an awesome prayer. That the God who has done all is all. We should bring glory unto him. There is nothing more important than the glory of God. You see, Scripture says that's the very reason you were created. Now, church, I want you to write down this Scripture. I'm going to read it for us. But if you want to write down Isaiah 43, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 as a bit of a backdrop. But the very reason you're created, the very purpose of your life is to bring God glory. Amen? So if hopefully you've written down Isaiah 43. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. It says this, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for your place, since you were precious in my sight. You have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse 7. Everything, no, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Church, did you catch all of those wonderful things that God said about you? I've redeemed you, called you, you're mine. I'll be with you when you pass through the waters or when you pass through the fire. I'm your savior. You are precious. I love you. I am with you and I will gather you. Amen. That's an awesome scripture from Isaiah 43. But did you notice in verse 7 it says, I have created you for my glory. Church, you were created to bring glory to the Lord. Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 says that you were created in the image of God. So that means that you are to bear witness of his image through your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God desires in that verse and other places to use our glorification of him 
to lead others to an awareness, and therefore then they begin to glorify him as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 43, later in that chapter, verse 21 says this, This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Church, God is all about his glory. He even tells us that and that he is a jealous God. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, and I love that I see so many heads writing, and in Isaiah 48, verse 11, both share a similar thought. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Now, I don't want to go there, but I want to just give you a quick example. If you remember, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 11, you're going, Jeff, we're in Job, right? We'll get there. Remember, I'm in a statement. You said five minutes, I know. I didn't even believe me when I typed that in my notes. But in Genesis chapter 11, that is pre-flood. That is the Tower of Babel. And man said, if you go to Genesis chapter 11, you can go there. And man said, let us build a tower up into heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. And you know, God said, "Uh uh-uh. And he came down and he confused it. And that tower never occurred. Stopped. God said, I'll be getting the glory around here. And what's so interesting is that just two chapters later, you get into chapter 12, and, and, and Abraham is on the scene. And God says, Abraham, through you, I will bless many. I will be glorified, and I will make you great. God says, it's my glory we're after. Even salvation was provided to us for God's glory. Now, if you want to write this down, I'm looking at I'm using my Bible drill skills from many years ago. But if you want to write this down in your, in your notes there, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to read verses 22 to 29. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 29 says this, remember I started this by saying, even our salvation was for God's glory. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you will dwell in the land that I will give to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. Verse 22, God says, I do all of this for my name's sake. Verse 23, I sanctify my great name. Verse 26, I give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I put my spirit inside of you. So church, can we agree that the glory of God is our greatest purpose? Church, can we agree that the glory of God is worth contending daily for? And then church, can we agree that God is worthy to be glorified in our lives regardless of situation and circumstance? You know, about 10, 12 minutes ago, we were all about God's glory. And then we're about 30% for God's glory right now. Because all of a sudden you're going, oh, I see where this is going. God's glory, let me give you a definition that I saw. God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful, and personal being. So let's take a look at today's scripture. We're just going to run through it Bible study-wise for just a second. Look at verse 6. It says, now there was a day. Now, church, this is not considered a special day. This wording would lead us to believe that this was yet just another day. Yet there was, now there was a day. But this day would change Job's life forever. Verse 6 goes on to say that the sons of God came. So Scripture says that there was a day when the sons of God came. Now that makes this is a routinely, this word sons of God is routinely translated as angels. Likely these were lead angels. In my way of thinking, God is calling a staff meeting. And this is familiar in Scripture to have angels appearing before God. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 5 says, And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station from before the Lord of all the earth. Let's go familiar here. Luke chapter 1. Oh, yeah, that's the Christmas chapter. Verse 19, speaking to Zechariah, Gabriel the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring these glad tidings. Do you get the picture here of what's happening? Gabriel stood before the Lord. The Lord said, Gabriel, come here. I want you to go down this place, this time, this day, this person, this message. Gabriel, go. Right? That's how it seems to picture here. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, says this. The Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. Even forward in Job 38, 7, which we won't get to for I don't know how long that is in the pool before we get to Job chapter 38. 
But in Job chapter 38, verse 7, it says this, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so we get this, on this day, the sons of God, the angels, appeared before God. Verse 6 says, to present themselves before the Lord. Now, I've mentioned to you that this is a staff meeting in my mind. This is how it began to make sense to me. The expression to present oneself or to stand before would probably mean something of an accountability. Someone who is being summoned, someone who is being directed, and someone who is ready to do the will of the one doing the summoning and doing the directing. They would give an account of their activities and then receive new activities to fulfill from the Lord. Now, so far, we're good, right? We look at verse 6. It says, now, there was a day when the sons of man came to present themselves before the Lord. And everybody goes, makes total sense to me. Verse 6, and Satan also came among them. Satan shows up for this meeting. But what's interesting, as Satan shows up for this meeting, he is allowed to enter. He is allowed to stay. He has conversation with the Lord. That must tell us that he was intended to be there. The word came among them. It seems reasonable that he should be there with all of the other angels that came before God. Let me give you a statement to sort of set your mind at ease just a little bit. God does not have to fellowship with evil, Satan is evil, in order to utilize it in his government of the world. God has used ungodly people for his purposes all throughout Scripture. God has used ungodly situation, circumstances, or whatever word I was getting ready to say right there. It was probably going to be a cool word that would... Zach, we better not ever have that on edit. I'm afraid one day we're going to put this little blooper reel of Jeff. I don't know what that word's going to sound like. But we're all coming together. And the Lord calls for him to report. From where do you come? You should need to hear this as, what have you been doing? Give an account of your actions, of your time, what you have been doing. And Satan says in verse 7, I've been going to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth on it. Well, Scripture tells us in many other places what Satan was likely doing, because in that answer, we don't really know much, except we know the character of who he is. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. John 10, 10. We know what Satan's up to. For the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that he blinds the minds of the unbelievers. He tempts 
to sin. That's scripturally true in various places in God's word. But before we move forward any further, church, can we agree that the glory of God is our created purpose? We're losing people. Come on now. Church, can we agree that the glory of God is worth daily contending for? And can we agree that God is worthy to be glorified in our lives regardless of that new word I created or our circumstances or our situations? Amen, right? I believe, we believe, the answer to those three questions is yes, yes, and yes. Then we get to verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job. A paraphrase might be, in all of your going to and fro, in all of your seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, in all of your blinding activities, have you taken the time to consider Job, to check out Job? And here, if you're not careful, you'll get offended. You're going, God turned Job over. God brought him up. You know, we might be all like Aaron Rodgers, and I don't know if you keep up with what's going on in the media, and this is a little bit of a sports reference, but uh, Aaron Rodgers is now a quarterback for the New York Jets. It's like a big deal, even though it's probably not going to be a big deal. Aaron Rodgers brought a coach over. Well, New York brought a coach over, probably because Aaron Rodgers wanted him. Brought a coach over that was a coach of the Denver Broncos last year. He was awful, awful. Got fired in season, his first season ever. Then the coach of the new Broncos, the new coach came out and said, that was the worst coaching job ever. And Aaron Rodgers didn't like it too much. He said, listen, I love that coach. He is a friend of mine. We have worked together good. You should keep my coach's name out of your mouth. But yet here we are in Job chapter 1, verse 8. We're eight verses into the book of Job, and we know what happens, and it's God who said, hey, staff member, have you checked out my boy Job? It's God who brings Job into this conversation. It's God who knows, based on this scripture, that Job is blameless, that Job is upright, that Job is one who fears God and one who shuns evil. That is the same description that we are given in verses 1 through 5 about Job, and God recounts them here, which means not only was it true in chapter, verses 1 through 5, but it's true now. It is God who knows, based upon this scripture, that there is no one else like Job on the earth. That's what God says, what Scripture says right there. And God asks Satan to consider Job, which means that God is asking Satan to try to steal, kill, and destroy. That God is asking Satan to seek to devour Job. Satan, whose name means adversary or one opposed, challenges God in this conversation. He said, I can't. You're going, he didn't say that. Well, he did, sort of. Look at what it says in verse 
9 and 10. Satan says, well, of course Job fears God because you're protecting him. And you've blessed everything he has done. You have built a hedge around Job, and nothing or no one can get in, and everything he does prospers. So, of course, everything that Job does is going to be about praise and worship to you because you are protecting him. Verse 11, he says, But if you, God, stretch out your hand, if you, God, take that hedge down, If you, God, don't cause him to prosper, he will. This blameless, upright, fearing of God, shunning evil man that is the greatest in all the world, he will curse you to your face. Notice that Satan recognizes that everything that has happened in Job's life up to that point is because of God. And notice that Satan says, I can't do anything to him until you drop the hedge of protection. And you're going, God, keep my name out of your mouth. Satan believes that Job is being faithful because of a false gospel. Remember I talked last week about prosperity. Job says, he's just loving you because you've taken care of him and given him everything that he wants. That's the prosperity gospel. And God says, no, the gospel, prosperity gospel is a lie. It is not true. And so therefore, okay, we'll talk about Job. Satan says, he only follows you because you make him feel good. Remember the therapeutic gospel, where it's all about help me feel good about me. And Job's really got it going on in about every way. And Satan says, God, until you reduce down your hedge, I can't do anything to him. Do you know that Satan has no power, no power except the power granted to him by God? Church, do you believe that? So the Lord responds in verse 12. Okay, Job's now in your hands. I have now pulled down the hedges. You can do anything you want to his stuff. You just cannot touch his person. The false statements that we must understand just occurred there. Satan cannot disagree with God that Job is faithful. You notice Satan couldn't say, oh, he's not faithful. He just says his faithfulness is not real. God does not disagree with Satan that he has been hedging around Job. God didn't say, I've not been doing that. No, God, by default, God says, yeah. I bless who I want. You've been protecting him. I've said this just a minute ago, but Satan can only have access to do anything in Job's life with God's authorization. God knows that Job will fare well and remain faithful when faced with loss. Do you think that's an important thing about God? God said, consider my, Job, my boy Job. He's, there's no one like him in all the earth. He will remain faithful. God knows that Job's going. While we don't know what's getting ready to happen through the rest of Job, God knows. 
And he knows that Job's faith is real. Satan believes Job's faithfulness is directly related to his prosperity and his feelings, and that he'll turn from God. And church, Satan's motives are 100% wrong. And Satan's motives are 100% directed toward God, whom Satan has sworn to be an enemy of. But his argument is correct. The only way for Job's character and faith to be made certain is for his character and his faith to be tested. There is no other way to publicly establish the nature of Job's faithfulness. Satan is doing something very necessary. Catch this, church. Very necessary to the glory of God. And I believe that Scripture supports that he is doing it at the direction of God. God is utilizing Satan for his glorification. In some deep way, it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man and that God's worth is no way dependent upon God's gifts. Church, this is the same logic that Peter presents to the first century church. In 1 Peter chapter 1, might be a good note for you to take. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. When Jesus returns, the fact that a Christian has gone on trusting and believing, even though all the blessings have been removed and has suffered severe trials, will prove to the universe that another human being considers God worthy of worship simply because he is God. God will be glorified. People have been trying to explain how God can be good and great and evil still exist. Now, I can, and I did, I've, I've studied a whole lot more, not near enough, but I've studied a lot. And there are some people that try to make apologies for God because they cannot figure out how God can be good and still have bad things happen. And so they begin to make apologies for God, and those apologies, church, end up becoming denominational groups or religions or theodicies. I mentioned that last week. There's one called finitism that says that God is doing the best that he can, but there's no way that he can control everything, and everything he controls is good, but there are things that are outside of his control that are bad. The only problem with that definition is, is it takes away the sovereignty and the all-powerfulness of God. 
And so church, anything that disagrees with the biblical definition of who God is, is not the truth. And finiteism, which is related to Buddhism and other flavors, it's not working. And then you go to something called determinism. Determinism means that God defines everything that you have no choices, none. Even what you put in your coffee this morning, God said, that's what you're going to put in it. That even crime is directed by God. That's determinism. The only problem with determinism is it takes away from the goodness of God. And church, can I remind you again that anything that defines God differently than the word of God is not the truth. But they do this so that they can help protect God, give him a way out, so he can still look good when struggles happen. Hinduism falls into this category as one. And then you go over to this group, and I did some studying, and I'm not looking to pick on people. I'm looking to pick on people that have tried to protect God's goodness and greatness by reducing it. They're saying evil doesn't exist. Therefore, God is off the hook. It's all just an illusion in our minds. And you're going, Jeff, somebody believes that? Yeah, it's called Christian science. Evil is just up here. It's not real. Death is just up here. It's not real. Yet they died. And what they're saying is, is that evil doesn't exist. Church, we know evil exists, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If evil doesn't exist, then you're lost because you don't have a Savior. It doesn't stack up with the truth. Now, I cannot approach understanding or going through what Job encountered. But I can know that since Job was faithful, spoiler alert, but since Job was faithful, I can be faithful in every situation and circumstance that comes into my life because it is my God that has ordained it into my life for His glory. The glory of God is more important than Job's comfort, than my comfort, than your comfort. Amen? Church, we need to understand. I was praying down here before I came up. I told you I was just like sick. I was, you know, this is going, this causes us to look at God and go, okay, so these things happen. Because you allow them. Bring them about in my life. Breaking arms. Cancer. You notice nothing's happened in Job's life yet, right? We haven't got that far. What's going on in your life? And how does it make you feel about God? 
This is an important thing for you to grab a hold of. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying I'm wrestling. But God's word has told me that God is good and great and loving. That his glory is worth more than anything. And if God can be glorified by me suffering trouble or loss, that I, because I'm Romans 12, a living sacrifice to him, I have said by accepting Jesus, whatever you want, I will glorify you. And so you're faced with a really hard moment because you're going, okay, so I'm facing this or I'm facing that and I'm facing this. And so God is, can be glorified in all of that. And God has allowed that to happen. And I don't know that I like that about God. Listen, that's a real struggle. And if you're at this struggle, here's what I ask you to do. Let's keep walking through Job. Let's see what a man who probably went through more than you will does, learns, asks, grows, and comes out of. And I think it'll be a great opportunity for us to Know more about God as well. Amen? God does not need me to stand up here and defend who he is. What God needs me, what God has called me to do, what God has placed inside of all of his children is a need for us to know him, trust him, yield to him, live for him, wait for him. Amen? God's glory is more important than any other thing in your life. And right now, I expect you, you know, if I say, and don't, don't do this, but if I were to say God is good, we'd have a routine, repeat it back. I forever want you to only repeat that back if you believe it to be true. Now, I've not yet gotten to the end of my journey, but I can tell you this. I have not seen God be unfaithful to me yet. And church... I may not be able to bet with you as to when we're going to get done with this sermon series. But I will place my entire life on God that He will be faithful to the end. He is worthy of glory. Amen.